Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me as usual is my girlfriend, Baz. How's it going, Baz? Hello, I'm here in my new cabin. Sorry if it sounds like I'm in a bath or a bit echoey or whatever. I haven't got enough role-playing books in this room yet to deaden the sound. That's what you need, lots of dead tree and paper everywhere to uh, absorb the sound waves. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm telling the accountant anyway. Yeah, it looks like you've got plenty of space for more games, so I can only assume you're going to be buying lots in the coming weeks and months. <laughs> um, it's going to be exciting because I'm kind of uh, getting all my stuff out of storage because I had to go digital for a couple of years, like many of us did. And um, I convinced myself that if it's in a hard drive, it doesn't really count as expenditure. <laughs> That's right, yeah. If you pay on card as well, then you don't no money changes. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'm having to go back to the old school method of ordering it on Kickstarter or whatever, and then say, well, the money was spent a long time ago, so this is basically free now. Um, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I'm going to get some shelves and fill them up with proper nice spines. And obviously, I'm going to spend forever thinking, how am I going to categorize all of this stuff? Because my favourite mm. games are all short, fat books now, instead of the big old encyclopedias right. of yeah. old. And much as I love Blades in the Dark, it doesn't seem right fitting in with all the other ones that are just A4. Got to no. find a way around that. Yeah, I have an indie shelf, or shells, and mm-hmm. uh, then other things. But yeah, just, just order them alphabetically, like your music albums, Baz. That's probably the best way to do it. Alphabetically? What is this, the 20th century? <laughs> do, do it by colour spectrum, obviously. Oh, that sounds cool, actually. Yeah, there's a trouble is there's a lot of black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got one copy of Nobilis sticking out when it's like enamel white square format. It's just <laughs> that game's annoying on a lot of levels, but mostly on a I've just got it in my house and it annoys me level. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, while we're talking about a variety of different games of which we have a surfeit a piece, I guess we can talk about how. Games, or mechanics specifically perhaps, uh, cause, help, facilitate uh, emergent play. So I've been having to think about some systems and like good things about them and how they make a game different. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of people play all games like The Colour Cthulhu, and it doesn't really matter what they're playing, they will just play the same way regardless, which is fine if that's the way you want to play your games. But um, from the kind of system matters argument of the spectrum, there is something to be said for having funky or interesting mechanics that then will bring out cool stuff in your games as well. So uh, I'll start out with uh, one just to uh, just to get the ball rolling. If you've mentioned Blades in the Dark. So I think that the first thing about them, uh, that Blades, there's many good things about it, but the one I wanted to mention was um, stress for flashbacks. Mm. So uh, I think our dear listeners may have heard some of these systems before. There'll be some old ferrets as we go through them, but worth it for new people or in case you've forgotten. I'm fancy going back to, to look at them again. But in Blades, you don't do the Shadowrun thing, where you decide the entire plot of what you're going to do and spend three hours determining how you're going to break into a warehouse. You just get on with the score. You, you try and dive into the Ocean's Eleven style. We're already ready in the casino. And then if things need to happen, you can spend stress for a flashback scene where you prepared for this exact eventuality and describe what you did. Uh, and I think having that sort of flashback mechanic, of which there's several other games that do a similar thing, enables you to get playing straight away and means that uh, you don't have people just worrying about have I got my 10 foot pole, do we have a holy water, do we have all the things that we need trying to cover off all the bases. A lot of the time that comes from learned behaviour of having bad GMs who punish them if you haven't got exactly the right thing. But it just takes all that away unless you get on with playing. So I think as my opening gambit, Blades of the Dark and the stress for flashbacks mechanic 
also as well the fact that stress if it gets too much will lead to be taken out so you can only do it so often uh, is, is a good start for 10 it is a good start for 10 mate I mean I love the flashback uh, oh, do you know what I'm not going to call it a mechanic I love the flashback rule that mm-hmm. Blades in the Dark has and as you rightly say it appears in a few games now it's a really interesting fictional device and it's definitely put in there for a reason and not just not just the planning turtling that the games can often grind to a halt with and and some people will enjoy that that kind of big planning session where they've got blueprints out and they're surveilling everything and mm-hmm. doing infinite background checks to just try and make it as risk free as possible i guess that comes from early dungeoneering doesn't it that kind of play and there's nothing particularly wrong with that but what we like about blades i know I'm sure you'll agree with this, is that it's trying to do a certain type of story, and to do that, it has rules and mechanics in there that get that story achieved, as opposed to a general... It's not a game of fantasy thieves. It's not that generic. It's about it's about taking risky missions and being daring. And yeah. So including that part in there, although it's relatively modular, you could, you could say that about any game, couldn't you? You could do it in Call of Cthulhu. You could say, let's have flashbacks. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem so necessary in Call of Duty because that's a different type of story. So, you know, happy days for a game to include stuff that it needs to achieve the game state it designed itself for. So I like it a lot. Mechanically, though, I mean, on a pure rules point of view, it's just a bit of stress cost, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And stress in Blades of the Dark is hit points, essentially. It's just their version of it. So there's not actually much to it as far as that's concerned. There's no dice rolling necessarily. There can be if, you, if you're asking for something that the table think is quite elaborate and maybe needs a, a, a more than just a I kept a knife in my boot you know if it's something more <laughs> exotic than that it could take up a whole new scene can't it if everybody starts leaning forward and looks interested yeah. so yeah it's definitely something that can um, put a fork in your game and I think that's that's what we're talking about today aren't we it's like what puts a fork in your game what makes your game take a different direction what mechanics are in there or fictional constructs to to help your table decide where it's going Based on what it did before, and yeah, to sort of to, to add in to the, the other things because stress isn't just used for that. It, it's another good element of Blades of the Dark is it's got group roles where basically everybody rolls, someone leads, and you take the best result. So it's actually more likely that a group will succeed on a stealth roll mm. than other games where you've all got whatever thirty percent in stealth and all have to roll it, and everybody has to succeed. So it's like virtually guaranteed you won't. So again, for for playing to the fiction that you are supposed to be a band of thieves and ne'er do wells, you should be good at sneaky places, and having a group role means you do. But for every failure, like the leader takes stress, not the person who made the mistake, mm. and that's just a good narrative. You can you can imagine that yourself if you're trying to lead. If you're the best at sneaking, you're trying to lead everybody else on a prowl through a warehouse, and other people are knocking lamps over and doing all the kind of stuff. Mm. You can see your attention level rising as you're trying to like keep everything quiet, and you're uh, worried about it. But that's another way of hitting those sort of like hit points you've called them or like a gauge of how much story you can have before you have to back off. So if you've led a, a, a prowl or whatever it might be and you've taken loads of stress because everybody else failed, the prowl might succeed, but then you might be so stressed you don't take the front foot anymore because you can't afford to take the hit because you're, you're very nearly stressed out. Mm. So uh, in, in terms of mechanic informing the narrative of the players, like some guys had his spotlight time trying to lead a, a, a prowl, and now they might have to like not do that. So it means someone else will have to step up as the leader next time. So it's a, a, a sort of neat underhand way of kind of spreading spotlight time around as well. Yeah, it's really good stuff. I, I, I feel like we could do 25 podcasts on Blades in the Dark or Forged <laughs> in the Dark stuff. <laughs> Look out for a sub-project coming up. 
Um, all right, let me throw this into the mix then, mate. And, and often seen as a bit of a brother or a sister or a cousin of uh, Forged in the Dark Games, it would be anything that's powered by the apocalypse, really. Mm-hmm. So uh, started with Vincent and Meg Baker's Apocalypse World has spawned um, a thousand games by now, I'm sure. Uh, and they're still going really, really strong. So, you know, a lot of creators are still making the decision to use Powered by the Apocalypse as, a, as their core for their game. We were talking offline a bit earlier about you managed to get a session of Avatar in, didn't you, over mm, last weekend? Yeah. So I think, you know, speaking generally about Powered by the Apocalypse is probably too big a topic. So I'll narrow it down to something um, specific. And that would be my favourite version of the game is Masks, which is a game of teenage superheroes. Um, in the mould of the Runaways, if you if you follow your comics, you know the sort of thing I mean, or Young Avengers, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's again, it's not a superhero game. It's not a generic superhero game where you can think, "Oh, my mate's running masks." He tells me it's a superhero game, so I, I quite like the Human Torch. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go over to to their place and generate a character, and I want to be I want to be a bit like that. It, it's not that kind of game, so. It's a game specifically about the relationships that as adolescents you have with the world around you um, and figures of authority. In other words, adults. Yeah. And each other. So, you know, being a teenager is a tough time. And then if you add in mutants, gamma rays, uh, superpowers, evil corporations, you've got yourself a pretty hot environment for gaming in. So it's much less concerned with, with statting out the various strengths of things, like, you know, would, would the Hulk or the Thing win in a fight? It's something that other superhero games do very nicely, and they spend ages trying to do it. Mars doesn't care about that at all. <laughs> but because it cares about how you get on with the, the world around you, it supports you mechanically by having your stats, of which you've got six, so that's pretty classic. And they will they will fluctuate during the game. So when you take a, a hit, and by a hit, I mean broadly something negative happens to you, you could get dumped. You could uh, you could have a, like a pop quiz at school. Um, you know, your parents could split up. Whatever the right. hit is, it changes your stats. So the GM or all the other players can move a stat up and move a stat down. And it's all about that emotional turmoil. Literally, your character is changing from moment to moment. Sometimes you feel super confident. Sometimes you feel exhausted. Sometimes you feel um, lonely. And all of those things will affect what you're rolling. And mechanically, it's not particularly a troublesome game. It's 2d6. You add them together and you try and score as high as you can. But just by manipulating your stats, and you are constantly rubbing them out with a pencil and eraser, as things move up and down, your character is changing entirely based upon what happened in the last scene. So your emergent play that we talked about in our last podcast actually results in something mechanical happening on your sheet which then causes you to do your next scene in a different way to the way you might have done it before. So there's all these little forks in the road are coming from important dice rolls, important narrative scenes, and you still have an awful lot of agency about how that happens. You're not just being buffeted by the world, Mm -hmm. um, but you can put yourselves into situations and it forces you to then put yourself into situations to recover from that stuff. So if you are feeling lonely, that's kind of going to hurt you until you can go out and have a drink with your friends or go to a beach barbecue or have one of those little interstitial scenes where you just phone your mum who you haven't spoken to for weeks. 
Mm-hmm. And then your numbers change. And that's the thing I like about it. And we like games, don't we, guys? So we do. The numbers change. It's not just as airy-fairy as like a, oh, I bet you're feeling a bit emotional this morning. Let's talk about it. Well, yeah, let's do that. That's the role play bit. But then there's going to be a, a dice is going to hit the table and a number is going to change and things are going to matter. Not just we're sitting around telling a story together in an improvised way. There's more to it than that. It supports that play still a game. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Sounds good. Yeah, I think we're going to need a graph at best to cover all the relationships because I've got about half a dozen games I wanted to mention all off various bits of what I said <laughs> in your last piece. So that's that's not going to work in a, no. in a two-dimensional podcast. So, um, yeah, I'll just briefly mention Avatar that there's um, one of the moves you can do, one of the general moves, is like call people out on their passions or something it's called. I can't remember the exact wordage. But it's along that line when someone's doing something that's not... Um, not in line with what they said their character was about or mm. what their feelings or beliefs are or whatever or what particular uh, elements they're, they're on with. You could, like another player calls another player out and rather than it being, oh, come on, Baz, you're supposed to be like, you know, headstrong and you're being really cautious and, and not getting involved. There's just a mechanic for it that lets you do that and you can move, it will actually move the stats up on the opponent if you, opponent, on your your friend that you're talking to. If you say like, no, come on, you're supposed to be a hothead and you, you succeed in the role, then they're, their hot-headedness will basically go up, so they're more likely to act in that way. And then, because they've got a big, bigger number in that, it's, it's more of an encouragement to do that sort of stuff because you get a big bonus for using it and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that that marriage of um, mechanics and narrative play fit together nicely. I guess the one to mention there, which we we're going to mention sooner or later, so let's get it out of the way, is Pendragon. Bingo! Traits and passions, yeah. <laughs> I've got that on my card. Yeah, there's, there's a couple more for people at home, so make sure you have your bingo cards ready for the games <laughs> we're going to definitely mention. But yeah, the, the sort of like having suspicious and trusting and uh, valorous and cowardly or whatever it might be, those kind of like uh, opposite traits that all add up to 20. So as one goes up, the other goes down, and as you play, you get ticks in them and they might go up and down, or you might just get points knocked off. That that sort of thing we've mentioned before. I think the, the things you've mentioned there or more direct and I think more, I guess more in keeping with modern games. So while I love Pendragon, and that Trace and Passions thing, which I'll always recommend to people if you want to go and look into it, it was quite slow and it is obvious time where you expect to play the great Pendragon campaign or live through your knight's 40-year campaign until he, he dies and you, you play his son after that or his grandson, that sort of thing. But the amount of moving up and down of things is quite slow if you run it as written. Mm. So I recommend people playing Pendragon and looking at these other games is to, to move things more. I think that's like if someone's being trusting all the time, you know, and implicitly believing, obviously lying NPCs, then just allow them to knock their trusting up because that's the way they're playing the character and it should be backed up with the stats in the game. So, mm. yeah, there's a mechanic there in Pendragon, or there's a several nice mechanics, but I would suggest uh, accelerating them to get more out of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of games have... Um... So, I mean, one of my calls will be now for any game that really includes something like the equivalent of a Benny or a Hero point mm-hmm. is trying to do something to address emergent play. So it's um, it's uh, all of those games that have those kind of mechanics, it's kind of like a safety valve, I guess. So it, it sort of rounds off the spiky parts of play. So most games have some kind of mechanic for a re-roll or a bonus dice in a situation. And it's all designed to encourage stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think that some games do it very generically, like Savage Worlds would do bennies, um, and, and they're a big big part of the game, they're part of the economy, I would say. And there's a little list of reasons why you would get a Benny or why you would not get a Benny, but it's all to encourage that fast, fun, furious game style that Savage wants you to do. 
And then in other games like the Warhammer Fantasy, the latest edition, the fourth one, you'll have fate points and fortune points and resolve and resilience, I want to say. There's four of them anyway. Yeah. And they're all little levers that are designed to encourage, or sometimes they're just to keep you alive. I think in Warhammer <laughs> it's fair enough to say it comes from fate points, it's just designed to keep you alive. Yeah. And the conceit behind that is, well, you're an adventurer. And also, you know, we're playing a game here. You don't want to be rolling up a character every 10 minutes, which you would be in Warhammer if you didn't have those kind of things. Um, and you can still be crippled at the end of it, but it encourages you to, like, keep your character. You can take a few more risks if you've got that little bank of fate points. So that's a that's a meta call, but it's also designed to uh, to promote the kind of play that it wants you to do at the table. And it gets a bit more granular with some of the other ones that they do. And I think when used well, those those games can really support the emergent kind of, of design that the designer had in mind when they first wrote the game. When done poorly, and we've discussed at length D&D's inspiration mechanic, which is getting revised for the new edition, mm-hmm. that ju- that's just a bolt-on. That's just, that's just so generic that it's <laughs> utterly flavourless and flat and, and brings really nothing to the game at all, ironically, mm. for something called inspiration. So there's a, like an anti-example of how something as simple as a Benny or a Hero Point can actually it can it can either be completely flat and just feel like a like a vestigial mechanic, or it can really push your game forward. For example, in Fate games, the uh, the Fate Point is absolutely central to every scene, and that economy going backwards and forwards with Fate Points really matters. And can only come out of actions that happen at the table. It's an entirely emergent economy. So that's from one end to the other with bennies and action points. I throw them on the table with a plum. And I shall take them all up before he has a chance to use them. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's, there's different ways of doing it. Like a gun was another one of the games I wanted to mention that's got, it's kind of got fate points in that you've got divine favour, which gives you an extra D4 you add onto your total. Normally you get some dice to roll in in a conflict and you pick your best team. And Divine Favour kind of sits on top, so it's an extra big beast. But the thing I like about it is it's called Divine Favour, and it's with specific gods. So you bring it in when their domain uh, would be you know, appropriate for whatever it is that you're doing. And uh, the fact that you make sacrifices on your boat in between islands to get you know Divine Favour back and that kind of stuff. So it is really just getting a boost. It could have been like, you know, gird your loins and get a D4 when you want one, or that kind of thing. It could have been anything. Mm-hmm. But what makes it good for that particular game is the dressing it up as... Being the you know the power of the gods protecting you or helping you or assisting you in some way, uh, and all the window dressing that goes around that in terms of how you get it back and where you would spend it and what you spend it on. So I think there's definitely um, ways of making something quite simple like that uh, more involved in the game and what you're trying to do. Hmm. The other one I probably mentioned with with sort of fate points is um, Dead of Night, the horror game by yeah. a good friend of the show Andrew Kerrick. Uh, that's got survival points, but they are um, the hit points first and foremost, but there are also things you use for rerolls or to have a thing if you just want to say, oh, of course I've got the car keys, we'll spend one, you've got it. Uh, and to flip some stats around, and there's like a list of things you can do with them. But it's all one resource. And I think it's the only game I've seen where that, that sort of seems to happen. Normally you have different tracks of things, and you might have fit points, but you've got your um, conditions track as well, or stress track, or whatever it might be, and other things. But like everything's in one in that. So I think that really helps with a game that's supposed to be out survival horror so eventually you're going to come to a a point where you're all either dead or something bad happens to you but like you have to spend that resource for everything if you do nothing things will punch you and make you lose them anyway so it's kind of like 
Um, yeah, it, 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 it's a good way of seeing what plot immunity your characters have got throughout a horror slasher fix sort of game. Or it doesn't have to be slasher, it could be all kinds of horror. There's stuff in the game for whatever flavour you would like to play. But having one track for all your resources, I think is like a very interesting idea. And it's kind of like spend it how you want rather than having, I don't know, three or four different pools of things mm. and only using them for narrow points of view. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you mean on that one. I mean, generally speaking, I like having little gads and things to move around on my character sheet. But if it's if it's not actually achieving much and it could just be in one pool, then that's that's efficient, isn't it, if nothing else? And, and then you're having to make your trade-offs, you'll push your luck style, aren't you? It's like, do I spend it yeah. for this or do I spend it for that? Yes, exactly. Resource management without getting a spreadsheet out. Yeah, exactly. And and it, it sort of feeds into things like I've seen for uh, Slam, which was a, an old D20 version of the comic book. Mm. That had um, to power spells you could take damage. Yeah. So you could literally use your hit points for basically magic points or spell slots to get more magic. And I like that idea of, you know, you're in charge of your resource, but, you know, spend it how you want, but there's a cost to it all. Yeah. One way or the other, you're making some kind of depletion of your resource. But you've got the player agency. You decide when you do it and if something's important to you or not. And, you know, dead or night, number of times I play that game and someone wants a shotgun. And I'm like, sure, I spend a survival point. Mm. And spoilers, everybody, having a shotgun or a claymore or a rocket launcher makes no difference in the game whatsoever. <laughs> makes you feel better. literally no difference. <laughs> but I can guarantee you every session someone will want a weapon, usually a shotgun, because they just feel psychologically better about it. But that, the game enables that. That's your choice. If you want to have less plot immunity to have a shotgun that makes no difference, well, here you go, man. Here, have a box of ammunition as well. <laughs> <laughs> Which segues beautifully. This isn't scripted, people, but it will sound like it now. This segues beautifully into Feng Shui with its shotgun rules. Mm. So uh, the classic shotgun rule from first edition Feng Shui, I think it's still there in second, is the Kachunk rule. Yeah. So if you spend your action, uh, uh, what's the? Well, I don't know what the technical word for it like is. Pumping it? the action on the gun to the slide action on a shotgun, yeah. go Kachunk Kachunk, and you, which brings your shell into the long barrel thing that fires. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, if you do that with a shotgun, you get a bonus to the next time you fire it, just because. And that just adds a little bit of fiction in, but it but it keeps it within the boundaries of the mechanics of the game as well. You invest a little bit of time, a little bit of fiction, get a number to add to a dice. That little feedback loop of rules and fiction, and the things you say and the things you do, and having the tiny consequence, that can all snowball into, into a really nice emergent session where the game is is allowing you to do what you want. You still have agency, but then you make your decisions and the game will fork immediately off of that decision and you will start going down paths that you couldn't possibly planned or plotted for. That's, that's for me, is one of the, the beauties of, of good role-playing. Um, and I love games that just do that. You know, they just they tempt you. Mm. Do, you want to, do you want to have a go at this? Do you not want to have a go at this? It is slightly push your luck, but it's also push your interest, isn't it? Push your interest yeah. levels. If you want to do something that's interesting, then my favourite games and the ones I think we're talking about today are the ones that that reward you for doing interesting stuff, not just effective stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the games that reward you for doing effective stuff would be like your old uh, basic role-playing, possibly your original D&D rules, your more traditional style. I'm, I'm not slamming those games for that at all. You know, you want to be effective. If you're going to go into a dungeon and you want to have all your character roles and you want to have your... Your cleric, and you wouldn't possibly even think about doing it without a thief with a certain amount of equipment. That's all fine, 
But then if we go into the other style of game that rewards you for doing stuff that's interesting, you're looking at Blades in the Dark and those kind of games that you're not optimizing anything before you get there. You're just trying to optimize the game experience for everyone at the table and the game supports and encourages you in doing that. Yes, yeah, very much so. I'm going to send a message to uh, Gun Jesus at the Forgotten Weapons channel, so he, he can he can look at your long chambery thing and other descriptions of guns to get us, <laughs> <laughs> get some accuracy. I'm sure he'll love that. I'll see if I can get him to watch it. Uh, listen, rather. But anyway, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, Feng Shui's got other things, doesn't it, as well? Like if it's uh, if it's raining in other games, you'd all get a penalty. But if someone's got a special uh, feat or ability that gives them bonuses for when it's it's raining or bad vision or whatever else it might be. They get a bonus and nobody else gets a penalty. Uh-huh. It's that kind of like positive rewarding plays. Like, you know, it's good that you're a killer, uh, whatever archetype you've got, like likes being moody when it's dark and raining and he broods with the, the rain pattering down his face and stuff like that. Kill, have you plus two bonus. Don't give everybody a minus two. Like, that's no fun for anyone. But giving mm-hmm. someone a bonus when conditions are bad, but they're okay with it. That's another good way of positively reinforcing playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other th- while I remember on Dead of Night, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, which will now show that it's not scripted at all, this podcast, but it's the, the tension mechanic. So you put a D20 on the table, it might start at like three or five or quite a low number. And when things happen, uh, bad things happen, the tension ratchets up, so you move the number by one. Uh, you can write it on a piece of paper, to be fair, but it's nice having a big D20 in the middle of the table, those big sort of like baseball-sized ones if you can get one. And uh, like when you roll a 13 on your dice... The tension goes up, and like just fun because thirteen's unlucky and that kind of stuff. That's all, all cool things. And as the tension gets to say ten or fifteen, the world becomes more alive, or the the things that were just shadows in the background now become you see figures moving around, and mm-hmm. there's something outside into the woods. And by fifteen, the horror is fully realised. That's good in itself, but the the GM can also spend tension to mess with players' roles. So you might go, oh, yeah, I just, just made it. Yeah, I just managed to like fight that monster. I was like, oh, no, I'm going to spend some tension. And you didn't, actually. You failed now. And like really just mess with the, that kind of um, stability and protection players think they've got from a rule system almost, from mm. their point of view. Because it's a horror game, and that, that sort of thing will happen where you think you're okay, you think you're safe, but something just happens that, that messes with it. And interestingly, you can use tension as well as a gem to make people succeed if they failed. So if someone was trying to do something and failed that task, but you think that's a boring from a story point of view, or like the fork in the road that you're going to go down that you've mentioned is less interesting if the player doesn't succeed, you go, okay, no, actually, I'm going to drop the tension, and you've succeeded. And it's got that weird um, kind of like two-way effect there as well. There's like tensions decreased as well in the scene because someone's done something well, even though it was reducing the tension that allowed them to do something well. It's really sort of like elegant feedback loop of, the ups and downs of horror movies and safe spaces to things becoming dangerous and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I really like feedback loops in games. Stuff that goes across... Uh, well, we don't really have GM screens so much these days, do we? But if, if you can imagine a virtual dividing line between GM and players, the idea of uh, metaphorically playing table tennis with each other <laughs> is you know the, the stuff moves across the net between you and the players quite a lot. Um, and so the Dead, in, Dead of Night tension mechanic... Is, is also seen in other games such as uh, Marvel Heroic, which is hard to get these days, but was powered by Cortex. Now, Cortex is still a thing. The Cortex role-playing game is very much toolbox. Um, it's out there. I've not invested in the new one, so for all I know, this is really old news now, or it just doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. But in the Cortex games of old, um, you would see certainly in Marvel Heroic, there was a, a notion called the Doom Pool, 
Uh, the Doom Pool was literally a collection of dice that the GM would build up over the course of the adventure or scenario. So depending on what the heroes were doing, um, they could get benefits to, to their lives, but that would also start seeding a pool that the GM would have. Mm-hmm. And rather nicely and very tactile, you you start off with 2d6, and they would just sit there, just... Yeah, just don't worry about that. It's just 2d6. I'm not going to roll them yet. But they would start getting d4s and d12s and d20s and more d6s added. And the pile would literally grow in front of the GM. And it's the Doom Pool. And the GM could just pick up a handful of those dice and add them to their roll. But they could only get them from the players feeding that Doom Pool over the course of the session. And that's a really nice... It's it's obviously very gamey. Because that's quite meta, isn't it? It's entirely meta, really. But it does feed into the fiction of that kind of rise and fall of the the antagonists and the protagonists winning and losing, coming back at each other, and so on. Which is what you see in the fate point economy. You know, do something, take a take a hit now to get a benefit later. Essentially, you see it reversed in two D twenty games like Conan with momentum, etc. Which is like, you know, do something really cool now. And it will get even cooler later. <laughs> so, you know, as you succeed, you succeed more. Yeah. So those are all design decisions that are designed to feed into that back and forth between GM and player, rise and fall of the narrative art, which I love. Yes, yeah, yeah. So they've got, they've got a similar thing in um, Star Trek Adventures, for example, that you've got um, threat and momentum, so the players generate momentum to do stuff. Mm. But if you've run out of it or you just don't want to spend it, you can give the GM two threat to get a bonus die for you. But obviously that means that the GM's got some threat they can spend to make things more awkward for you, let's say more reinforcements turn up or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that, that kind of playing backwards and forwards. I think FFG Star Wars has got a similar thing with light side and dark side points. Mm. That you all roll the lights, the force dice, whatever it's called, and generate how many of the light side and how many dark side points they're going to be. But when you spend one, you flip it. So if the players spend it, it becomes a dark side point, And if the GM spends it, it becomes a light side point. So you get you get that ebb and flow of things going backwards and forwards, and I think that's um, that's a game. It's giving agency to people on the table, isn't it, to decide mm-hmm. when they want to do stuff, and they know the consequences. But like, it's good that players have a mechanic for doing something to change their fortune, or when when something something they really care about that they can put extra into it. Uh, which is one of my complaints about like old school D and D and stuff like that. I know some people love that kind of game, but the fact that you just roll your dice and that's it is fine, but it seems quite dull. When there's not a pool of things hanging around the background that can that can give you more input into the game when you want it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing I was going to mention actually about Star Trek while we're talking about that, or I mentioned it, is um, they kind of do skill challenges or extended scenes. There's a lots of different extended uh, mechanics for for different things in different games. Uh, this one has uh, work and breakthrough that you kind of got to achieve to do something. So works kind of. Uh, might be a number of boxes, say 12 or 14, of number of successes you've got to get just to tick off. And breakthroughs are when something uh, significant happens, and you've got to like do both. So it's like two different metrics that you've got to try and tick off to be able to complete this task. And the good thing about Star Trek is you can you can say whatever you want. You can, you know, like, this is the scene, this is the problem. You need to convince the uh, energy beings to leave the planet alone. Okay, what are you going to do about that? And you can pick literally anything from your stats and skills to do that with. And... Uh, it, it, so it's good, first of all, because players can just come up with whatever they want to and don't have to worry about if they've got the right skill in inverted commas. But I like the fact that it, it gives you those narrative beats of having the breakthroughs as well, of when you hit a breakthrough, you can, uh, as Jim introduces a significant story point or something cool about the narrative or the way the scene's changed, 
So while the players are busy doing their skill challenge, uh, as a GM, you've also got certain points where you can interject and say, and now this happens, and now that's happened, or whatever, and it gives you that extra bits of um, just permission, really, to join in on the story. So mm-hmm. it's not all down to the players to just describe what's going on. Uh, but I like the sort of narrative framework it gives you to discuss a scene that would happen in something like Star Trek, but puts the mechanics around it and gives some uh, little dials for making it harder or easier or uh, allowing you to interject at certain points when you add in as well things like the momentum pool that's there and threat. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, reflecting on all of the stuff that we've mentioned, and I think we're, we're kind of pulling at a similar thread here. Question for you then, guys. So, do you think that games benefit or don't benefit from having having some mechanical consequence to this kind of emergent play that we're talking about? So, so see if I can clear up my question a bit. Is is a bit of GM advice, a paragraph of GM advice, is that enough or does it have to hit the table in some kind of game way to really count? Well, have is a strong word, but it, it should is probably the word I would use. Because mm. the first thing you want to remember is that we're kind of old veterans of the game now. So there's loads of stuff that's in rules that we see that people go crazy about, oh, this is amazing. And we go, well, that's just how you GM, isn't it? And shrug a bit. Well, we don't, but people of our cohort probably do. Mm. Because we've forgotten that we've learned lots of lessons and, and techniques and tips and tricks over decades of play, or many years in some people's um, experience. But like having rules like that enables newer people to get those GM tricks and tips and techniques in a way they wouldn't do otherwise. You can Sure, you can watch YouTube clips, you can watch Critical Role or other things, but having them written down in the game, like Apocalypse World does or Forge of the Dark World do, particularly like this is how you play this game, mm. this sort of game, uh, just enables people to get there faster. Uh, and I think it, it opens up other older gems who perhaps not got the broad range that we have, like uh, opens their eyes to new ways of doing things or how things might work. And as you mentioned already, like you move things, you can put flashbacks in Call of Cthulhu if you wanted to or things like that. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of mm-hmm. having the mechanics there gives you uh, it also gives like it feels like you're playing the game in inverted commas. When we had uh, one of the D and D design team on many years ago now, and he was talking about basically saying you could do the Great British Bake Off in D and D if you wanted. Well, you can, but there's nothing that real book would tell that tells you how to do it. You'd literally be just making it up yourselves. At which point, why do you need a DMG in a player's handbook? Because you're not referencing them to play the game that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if someone, I mean, if I looked on H, there probably is several of these games, but if someone wanted to do a great British Bake Off game, you'd want mechanics around, uh, probably some kind of like time pressure, some like don't mess it up at this point, having to make crucial roles, you'd have disparaging comments from the judges and how does that impact your, your stress levels or whatever it might be. Having those um, mechanics in there uh, drive the sessions towards a certain type of play rather than, as I alluded to earlier, some people sit down to a game and just want to play Call of Cthulhu. Yeah which is fine if that's what you like doing, but there's there's lots of different ways you can play games and different things you can introduce to make it more interesting. Mm. Uh, and I don't consider, for example, the fact that they've introduced pushing roles. That's one of the things that I think makes BRP palatable for me. It's not my sort of system necessarily, but the fact you can have that, here's an escalation and risk, but you get another bite of the cherry. Do you want to, do you want to take it or not? That suddenly makes that game a lot more interesting than it is without that rule in there. Yeah, it does. It really does. Um, definitely. And, and I think Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition is is a is a really good if you're it's, it's a good game anyway you should get it it's it's really well it's really well put together and it's a lovely thing to have um, 
but it's obviously I know that Paul Fricker and Mike Mason had to had to try to had to try to keep a lot of demographics happy with the way that they were putting their game together to take one of yeah. the oldest role playing games, the oldest properties there is, with one of the oldest core game systems there is, freshen it up, make it tighter, make it really sing, make it worth having a new edition without throwing out what at this point would be a lot of sacred cows. Um, mm-hmm. And stuff like pushing roles for everyone like yourself and me, guys, has gone. But this is just this is exactly what the game needed. This is spot on. It, it just fits beautifully. Like advantage in D and D is just like, well, well done. Why wasn't that there forever? <laughs> yeah. There are people who go, oh no, this is kind of like this has ruined it for me a little bit here. This isn't the mm. bleak game that I that I wanted. That I've grown up with, you know, where everything is is completely binary, is pass or fail, and now you don't get any redos. So <laughs> you know everything. Everything that goes into a game's design is is it hopefully is put there with with some thought about the consequence to it, and it's designed to fit in as a whole. And I think with Call of Cthulhu Seventh, it definitely does. The whole thing is designed as a piece, and I think it's a really good thing. Um, but for all of the, all of the stuff that we're suggesting today, I am actually aware that I'm sure some of our listeners will be thinking all of these ideas just sound completely counter to the kind of fun that I get as a game. So possibly, if you are an old school role player, possibly the stuff we're talking about just sounds like sounds like something you don't want at your table. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to get too broad brushy here, but I, I think that all the stuff that we're we're saying is great. I have a feeling that other people will think that I don't want any part of that in my game. Can, <laughs> do you understand where I'm coming from, me? Yeah. Well, we're all different, like different things. That the sort of point I've made there is that. I, you know, I, I like Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green. And also, yeah, I love them. Mm. But um, what I want is the characters' life to be miserable, not the players. So what, <laughs> what you quite often get around the table, I've seen it many convention games over the year, is people like, oh, I've missed by one that you used to get before there was a luck mechanic or, you know, I've just I failed. And you can't have a push roll because that rule didn't exist. Like that wasn't, nobody was in the thing going like, are oh, my investigators now in trouble because they're locked in a room with their dimensional shambler? It was just like the player literally going, oh, well, that's shit then. And, and like, then just had feel bads. So sure, play whatever game you want. But I think that all these things help players have a better time, even if their characters are supposed to be miserable and spiraling into madness or dying alone in the woods to a dark young of Shubnigraph or whatever it might be. Hmm. Like you still want the people on the table to have a good time. Like there's no. Punishing players doesn't lead to a better play experience, in my view. Right. I'm quite happy to listen to, to people on Twitter or people on email or whatever to tell me different, but uh, I would suggest that you making characters' lives miserable good, making players' lives miserable bad. No, that, thank you, mate. That, that really helps me with my thinking because we, we had a bit of a block earlier. Well, it's a long time ago now. Yeah, sorry, going to Blades in the Dark again, but it's, it's this kind of game. Blades in the Dark makes a thing of uh, you've only really got three results from, from your dice. You either mess up, uh, you succeed, and but very, very often you get that middle range where, yeah, you do okay, but there's a bit of a consequence to this. There's a twist or, well, you fail, but, you know, but there's a bit of a silver lining in there too. And and that's that's quite a common outcome. And the game is designed for that to be a common outcome. And what that does is it pushes your character into really interesting positions. And by interesting, I mean in the Chinese proverb sense. Okay, so <laughs> that's what the game is designed to do. Some players find that incredibly frustrating. Oh, why can't I just get what I want? 
<laughs> Welcome well, to real life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Welcome to real life. But also, this this is not this is not that game. This is not that game. Yeah. This is designed deliberately for that to happen. Okay, mm-hmm. there are plenty of other games where you can feel very powerful. You know, you can just go slaughter your way through hordes of goblins and and barely anything will happen to you. There are other games. So, you know, picking a game is more than just like, oh, that looks like an interesting setting or an interesting idea. Sometimes there is some there is some play style that is very, very clearly laid out in the introduction, usually. Like, this is what this game is going to be about. Yeah. What's sometimes difficult, I think, is when when you we're talking about emergent play, is when a game emerges over the course of a couple of sessions and you all realise, like, well, this isn't quite as build. You know, we did a session zero and everything, but this game is doing something different. And um, my example for that is going to be the very first sessions of D&D I ever played. It's, mm-hmm. it's, if you look now, people will say it was always obvious what you were supposed to do in D&D because of the way the experience point system worked, which is you got an experience point for every gold piece you looted, and um, that fighting monsters was a terrible idea because it was obviously really, really dangerous. And the experience points you get for killing a hobgoblin are nothing compared to the experience points you get from uh, from robbing the till at the tavern. <laughs> but I didn't know that. And you know what? It was fairly recently that I only kind of figured that out. I genuinely <laughs> thought it was a game about going into dungeons and killing monsters. And, and the game itself has had to change through loads of editions to probably support that kind of play a little bit more. That mm. The people who loved original D&D, they figured that out. But it wasn't actually laid out, as far as I could tell, in the rulebook. It didn't say, in this game, the best thing you can do is try and be stealthy, try and come up with exotic plans. You know, Don't get into a fight. Whatever you do, don't get into a fight. I know that this book's now got 80 pages of how to do fighting, but you don't want to do that. That's desperately bad. It didn't actually tell you what to do in D&D. Yeah, and it leads to believe that it's about fighting monsters because they put so many pages of monsters in yeah. there. So many, there's pages of traps or you know mechanics for casting spells. Well, surely we cast spells at monsters then. That's what you're telling me implicitly with your game. <laughs> that's right. Because that's what all the words are about. And it took a little while to realise, well, actually, I've only got one spell and it's comprehend languages. And I've only got four <laughs> hit points. And that orc with a sword is going to roll a d8. That's hang on a minute, isn't that like fifty-fifty? I'm dead. Yeah, but it wasn't explicit about it. Whereas yeah. I, I like to think that even modern D and D is much more explicit now with it, with pillars of play and all of that kind of stuff. Mm. But you know, all games benefit from from trying to uh, support you in your emergent play, but not blindside you with you thought this was a game about personal terror, and it turns out to actually be about that's not actually what happens. Because yeah. you're not supported in that way. Yeah, I think games can suffer. They're certainly the old style games like D&D where they just got page after page after page about something and then say you can play Great British Bake Off. It's like, well, you've not put anything in the book that says that. So you, you're not <laughs> you're not doing what you're saying the game's about, which is a bit weird. Mm. So if you look at games like uh, Barbarians of Lomoria, which I ran this weekend, just gone at Furnace, a great convention you should get up to if you can manage it. Uh, there's uh, a couple of rules in there, but like the system itself is basically roll 2d6 and try and get a 9. You add some mm. numbers based on your stats and whatever. But you do have hero points to spend and some other tweaks and, and bits and pieces. And it's kind of a, a Conan-style game of that kind of like pulp, swords and sorcery kind of thing. So I chucked, you know, 20 baddies in one of the fights of the players and they all look nervous because if you were playing D&D and you had 20 goblins and you're all first-level characters, that seems like a lot of goblins. 
But this game it isn't, and there's a you can spend a hero point to do rabble slaying, where your damage is the number of opponents you kill, rather than like the amount of damage you do. And once you see rules like that, and I let them know it's available, the players are like, oh, right. And then they can start to um, talk about what they do more in terms of how many people they're killing with one blow and not thinking it too many and all that kind of stuff. And the other good thing it's got is like a lot of games have a fumble mechanic and you fumble and you kind of go, again, it's a little bit player feels bad when you fumble a lot of the time. You kind of like the dice have come a certain way and you're just screwed and that's it, suck it up. In Barbarians of Lemuria, if you get uh, Snake Eyes, you can get a hero point if you want it to be a calamitous failure. So it's really just a fail. But if you want to make it a fumble, I will give you a hero point for it. And literally every time I offered it to players, they said yes. Yeah. Sometimes before I finished my sentence saying, do you want to? And yes. they're like, give me a hero point. <laughs> give it to me. Making my character's life worse. So little tweaks like that and little rules can make a lot of difference in the game. Like It's gone from being a fumble which everybody rolls their eyes at to please let me fumble. Give me those delicious hero points so I can spend them later on kills that I want to do. And what what bad things happen to my character? This is exciting. Hmm. So yeah, l- little bits and pieces like that can make the feel of the game a whole lot different for players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that ties back into the um, don't just advise people about how to role play a fumble. That's that's you know that in some rule books that will just be a paragraph of like it's a mess up. This is how you should adjudicate it. To actually putting a little bit of mechanical heft in there. Mm. And that that's all the difference, isn't it? So, you know, I'm kind of answering the question I posed to you about 15 minutes ago now. I think, generally speaking, yeah, just advice isn't enough. Um, and I've, I've fallen victim to this myself when I wrote King of Dungeons. I put flashbacks in there. But it's a, it's a piece of advice. It says, use them, basically. And I put them, right. some comedy words around it. But there's there's no <laughs> dice rolling to be done. And, and I didn't even have, like, you know, a stress economy or anything like that. And in all the games King of Dungeons I've played, no one's ever used them. So mm. you know, if you write if you write rules for stuff, it will come. You would like to think, and, and I like to think that that when you're playing a role playing game as a player, you have you could do whatever you want, and people will do whatever they want. But actually, people don't do just anything. Just saying you can do anything you want isn't going to be enough. If you provide like some context and some ideas and some notions for people and and help them out with it, they will then take those avenues, like the shotgun ruling in Feng Shui. Yeah. I, I doubt very much that that would have just happened organically at the table where a player said, oh, I'm going to dramatically pump my shotgun. I'm not going to fire it this turn, but that feels like I should get a <laughs> bonus next turn. It's like, whoa, okay, that's just an interesting piece of game design you just came up with. But when you know it's in the game and the designer leads you down these paths, you start to take it. And that's, that's yeah. different. You know, It's not like you've got a drop-down menu of there's only three things you can do. But just by putting it there and having it on the table, it's much more likely to be used, and then that informs the kind of game you play. Yes, yeah, definitely. And it's like I saw this at the weekend as well. It's like you still get some players who say, "What do you want to do?" Even mm-hmm. in quite an open game like Fate Accelerated or something like that, and the head drops to the character sheet immediately. Something we, we often sort of yeah. uh, comment upon. It's like the, the answer is not necessarily on your character sheet, but. Mm-hmm. If the game's designed in a certain way, it might be. You know, in things like Avatar, for example, that that same player could look at the character sheet and they had some special moves that only their particular character could do, mm. and there were some generic moves anyone could do, but can ask open questions and that kind of stuff. So, having the cool things that you want to have in your game uh, written down as mechanics and able to happen. And I think from the GM side, the the common complaint I've got about PBTI games generally is that people don't do them properly, in my view. Mm. And that's they try and run them like Call of Cthulhu or whatever, and just use the TD6 mechanic, which 
we know from Vincent and Meg when we chatted to them is like they're quite laissez-faire about what you call Power by the Apocalypse. They don't care. But I don't care if they wrote it. I'm, I'm right. <laughs> Just do what I say. But for, for me, it's a lot of the cool stuff in uh, Apocalypse World certainly was written in the text of the game as GM advice or things you do to run the game. Mm. And I, I just think that because it wasn't necessarily uh, mechanicized, if that's a word, a lot of people haven't picked up on it. Mm-hmm. And I think if there, was, if there was more of a mechanic around some of them, some of those p- things they tell you to do, then they would get used more often. Yes. So I don't think it's a failing. It's not failing on the writing. You know, people can play games however they want equally. Uh, Vincent and Meg know what they're talking about. Who am I to tell them they're wrong? But to our discussion, I think if you actually have some mechanics around stuff, it will see more player than if it doesn't. Is, is the reality? Absolutely agreed. I'm, I'm going to chuck in an example to support what you just said there, mate. And no one's got this on their bingo card. If you have, let us know. The fantasy age game, or any of the age games, modern age, or I suppose most people would actually see it if they forgot the expanse RPG expanse, uses, yeah, yeah. uses that mechanic. So in that game, you're rolling three d six. And you're looking for high numbers. But one of your dice is a special dice. And who doesn't like special dice? Well, lots of people don't like special dice, but they're wrong. (laughs) I I applaud any game that makes me buy individual dice for it. Because why not? (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, you just need a different colored dice, you know. Uh, But that dice, in in short, their version of critical hits or whatever it would be, will send you to another little sub-menu of results that you can get off of your, your drama dice, your D6, from 1 through to 6. And they have them for everything. They have them for, like, they're breaking into banks. They have them for um, uh, uh, net-running type stuff. They have them for chases. Yeah. They have them for escapes. Um, and it's all delineated. It's all on there for you. So you've got loads of little lookup tables, which is very much the opposite, I suppose, of the Powered by the Apocalypse stuff that you were just mentioning. But it's another way of doing it. But by putting mm. the mechanics in there, you are you chase the number and you find out what's happened. Then everybody looks it up and everyone goes, ooh. And it's a bit like the old Rollmaster critical tables, isn't it? It's another thing yeah. that comes from you, you roll the dice, you've got a critical, you look it up. And it's, it's, it's something that everybody then nods along with and goes, right, cool, let's, let's fold this into the game. So you can either have your hand held incredibly tightly through the process, fancy age, role master criticals, or you can make sure you read the actual advice from Vincent and Meg Baker in Apocalypse World and go, ah, okay, all right, yeah, so you know, pressure under fire, I know what that means now, and I can you know, scratch my head a little bit, and then we can all agree what that does. So you can, it could be a light touch or it could be a heavy touch, but all of it is encouraging the next scene to be as a result, as a consequence of the thing you just did. Yeah, that's emergent play. Mm. Yeah, very much so. There are some rules in other games that just kind of like fit with uh, what you're trying to do. I, I, again, we're jumping around a little bit here. That's all right. right. But um, thinking of D and D and stuff like that, if you go to like Into the Odds, uh, Chris McDowell, one of our, our glorious guests, wrote that that's got a good mechanic in that you just roll damage. You don't roll to hit or anything like that. You, you know, if you get in a fight, you just roll the damage, and that's. Again, quite a simplistic mechanic, but it's 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 informing play. And I think if you are in that kind of the thing you were talking about, where you're playing D and D and you've got a wizard and you've got your one spell and four hit points with an orc with a sword, like that is very much like if the orcs hit you, you're fifty fifty chance whether you're dead. Yeah. There's, there's no to, to hit roll or anything like that. So that very much leans into that style of play. So I think even if you are playing the older school games, or that's that's your thing, there's there's definitely games with mechanics that support even more strongly that sort of play than perhaps or D&D does or something like that. Mm. So yeah, d- doing things that 
promote the style of play you want doesn't necessarily mean the things we've been talked about for the first 50 minutes or whatever. It could be whatever style it is. I can guarantee you there'll be some rules out there which just drive you down that path or support you in a certain mode of, of play and operation that you want to see at your table. Mm. Yeah, there's probably you could probably write a thesis on push and pull in games. Yeah, which games have you know like a player agency is the thing that drives the game as it player, not character. Mm. And which things where the game system itself is pulling you in a certain direction and encouraging you to to step down its path. There are some games which are very very straight straightforward. Some of the little pamphlet like story games where you're you know a team of samurai marching up a hill. It's very specific what is mm-hmm. in scope and what is not in scope. And the right. game absolutely rewards you for playing that. And yes, you could all sit down and start like making sandwiches or doing a bake-off <laughs> in the middle of it, but there's nothing there. To, you, you're, you're, you're off on a jaunt of your own at that point, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, get your bingo cards out, everybody. I'm going to mention Hot War now. So uh, Oh, that that's filled in a line for me. Well done, yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the one of the things about that, you have to approach the game in a certain way, I think, uh, uh, which sort of feeds to some of what you're saying there. But you have things like, for example, you have traits, which might be uh, burned by treachery or something like that. But that trait could be positive or negative. And it doesn't really matter which way it is because any trait you use will give you an extra dice in your dice pool. So again, it's that kind of like um, thing with Feng, Feng Shui we talked about where you get a bonus, whatever, like that. Again, it's increasing the player experience by giving you more dice. So even if you've got like a list of 10 negative traits and that's all you've got, you can if you can bring them in, you can roll ten extra dice. So you're gonna do really well. If one of them comes out of the top as the highest die, then something bad's happened as a result, which relates to a trait. So there's, there's that yes and or yes but element to it. But it's it's just another way of rewarding you for playing into your disadvantages, if you will. That you get mm. mechanically more dice to to use and that sort of thing. But again, it's again the benefits if people are, are into it and understand what's happening. Because I have played in some games where what people try to do all the time when they get you kind of after every conflict, if you win, you get points to spend to kind of change things around a bit and move your stats up and down, as we've mentioned. And some players will just try and move all their negative traits to positive, just increase the stats. Just like so there's no there's nothing negative on the sheet basically by the time they've finished. And you can do that, but if all the players just try and do that, you end up suddenly with a very boring game where there's no light and shade, there's no, you know, I do this, but at this cost. And that's the interesting bit of the game. So for some of these um sort of the independent type games, you just kind of got to look in and, and approach them in terms of like, what are we trying to achieve at this game? And I think that's that's the important thing to look at. I think we've alluded to this before. You certainly mentioned it. It's like on that first page read what it's about. But like, as players lean into things, so even when you've got mechanics that support you, like there will be some games that you can, in inverted commas, break if you try and play them to win. Mm. If, if winning for you is there's nothing negative and you never have any negative consequences and there's you know nothing bad happens to you. One of the great players uh, we play with all the time is, is one of our long-standing patrons, so thank you to her and all the other patrons who support our podcast. But Alina, is, you know, she loves like torturing her characters. She, she just She's at her happiest when something terrible is happening to the character she's playing. So a game like Hot Warfare fits perfectly. Uh, perhaps if you're one of the people that we've mentioned earlier who just likes playing old-school D&D and you know, wants to get every bit of advantage and protect the character as much as possible, it, it will not appeal to you. But there's a variety of games and different ways of playing. And I think that's the thing with mechanics is, although you can port some around, sometimes the sorts of mechanics that are there aren't right for the sort of game you want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and others will be. Mm-hmm. So pick and choose and take the best ones. Yeah, and um, and to sort of rally some of the 
the stuff that we've been talking about, it's not strictly the purview of just your independent story games at all. There's plenty of games that, that really do reward emergent play, and some of them are predicated on it. Um, Dungeon Crawl Classics, mm. with its funnel system, which I'm sure by now everybody knows. I don't. It's not even my favourite part of that game. I think it overshadows a lot of the other stuff that Dungeon Crawl Classics does, but essentially it's it's a it's a fun way of getting getting your character started in the game. So you will you will start the game with four, five, six characters, and these are these are simplicity itself to generate. I mean, there's not much to them. They fit on an index card, and they are utterly disposable. That's why it's called a funnel. And your first adventure is designed to to kill them all off in a squid game kind of <laughs> <laughs> fantasy Vietnam, <laughs> and and some people just like playing funnels just because of that. But what, why does that make it emergent? Well, what happens is, and you've talked to. Uh, uh, at length, mate. I think you should probably write a book on, like, you know, the emergent play of the squire that has no name in, in session one and becomes like the central part of the campaign. But in that funnel system, as fighter two get, fails a poison save and and um, and Bob the wizard uh, falls into a pit, you, you're whittling down your little selection of index cards in front of you to one or two, and all of a sudden they start to develop personalities, characteristics. They're probably a bit luckier than the others, or more cowardly and run away from stuff, you know, like flashmen. And they're, they're sitting under a pile of bodies waiting for the orcs to pass. <laughs> and by the time you're into session two, that character generation thing has essentially done what old school D&D character generation used to do by just having character generation be really fast, but really random. Yeah. So instead of doing that, here's a pool of characters, let's play with them and let the session take charge of whether they're interesting to you, interesting to the table, uh, whether they've got some survivability, and they just start generating story immediately because you're playing the game. And your first session really is not character generation, but character choosing. So at the end of that <laughs> session, you've got something that you're really invested in. Yeah. Now, that's quite clever. And, and lots of people talk about the funnel as just being like a fun random carnage thing. And it is that. It is absolutely that. But it is also quite clever because if, then if you take those characters forward into its into level one, because these are all level zero characters at the start, that level one character has actually got some backstory that everybody was there to see and witness. You didn't have to write it all out in advance. You're slightly more invested in it than you were in the first place. And now you're ready to play the game and everyone knows each other. Yeah. Now that's that's almost impossible to achieve in standard D and D with your first session. Mm-hmm. So clever, 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 and uh, it's play deciding what happens to your characters, not you on your own with a pencil. Yes, yeah, it's it's like a it's a, it's a session zero with handlebars, isn't it? Almost, it kind mm. of like takes you through a lot of the stuff that you would maybe try and do in a session zero, and just does it by playing the game, which is a, is a great way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose another game we've got to call out, and that might, might be bingo time again. I don't know, but Thirteenth Age. Yeah, I had that. Had that. Yeah, I've got, I've got that stamped already. That's permanently stamped on my card. <laughs> but yeah, the escalation die. So that, that ticks up after the first round, and you add it to all attack rolls. It just means that that boring bit of a fight in D and D, where you're trying to kill off the baddies at the end, it's taking forever. That becomes a lot easier by getting bonuses. Uh, a good friend, Guy Milner, uh, sometimes stunt bars on the show. He did a a, a, a cool thing. I'll, I'll not say exactly what he did, actually, because he might run the scenario again, but uh, there's a couple of things we messed around with how the mechanic works of the Escalation die, and, and Buddy's getting to use it, and one or more of the players doing, but not all of them and stuff, so you can kind of, like, 
sort of like tinker around and do that hacking thing that people like to do with games even with a game that has a good uh, mechanic already you can do extra with it if you think about it hmm. and also the 13th age thing which I might be still in your thunder but the, the one unique thing mm-hmm. is another good one that's your way of putting stamp your stamp on the world like saying I'm the last surviving elf well that suddenly killed all the other elves that were in the world <laughs> and you are the, you are the one left but uh, another like it's not really a mechanic per se, is it? It's just a thing. It's a it's a it's a rule, maybe, or a, a, something you add to your character sheet. But it can have wide ranging impacts, and it enables players to get invested in the game world mm. by making that I'm the only one who has this, or does this, or I'm that. Yeah, yeah. My my final contribution to this to this discussion is um is a, a more generic point about emergent play, and you see this a lot of conventions, uh, and in one shot certainly is the idea of the half baked character. Mm. So um, it's it's quite onerous, isn't it? Generating up six PCs for a convention game, no matter the system, is actually quite homeworky. <laughs> it feels like it should yeah, the, be a lot. The of first fun. three are fine. Yeah, <laughs> characters four, five, and six are sometimes not the greatest. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but what what can really help, and you see this in Thirteenth Age, particularly at conventions, I think it's actually is it properly put into the rules is you can have most of a character ready to go, like the basic skeleton of it, and some completely free slots that will emerge from the play. They're almost like quantum abilities, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Fate used to do this too. When Fate really got started, but I was Spirit of the Century, you had to have ten aspects. Oh my goodness me, the first three were fine. But after that, they got really you know, just tenuous. So, yeah. But the half-baked character sheet is quite a nice way of getting to the table early. You've got enough on there to play, so let's go. And then um, you find out what you can do or what your strengths or weaknesses are by just going, oh, this seems like a good time to write this in in pen. Um, And you start filling in your slots as you go. And then by the end of that session, you've got a much more rounded character. But it's come from being asked decisions in the game. Mm. So you're in Mirkwood. Here comes the spidery thing. What do you do? If you look down at your character sheet, it's mostly blank. But then you can decide, well, actually, like I'm going to be a, a, I was raised in the woods or whatever it is, or I can blend into darkness. Happy days. Write it down. That's now you. So it's a little bit like the funnel. It's a little bit like a lot of the other techniques that we've talked about. But it means that your decisions don't, you don't have to put pressure on yourself before the game starts. You can just play to see what, play to find out what happens. Mm. So just get in there, make a decision. Make a decision based on your character, and then your character grows, and then the rest of the world forms around it as well. Cool. And there's a lot of games that will do that. If you just buy a game off the shelf, it will always take you all the way through character generation. I don't think any of them have got it coded into the books, is it? Like, start with this piece of a character, and then after game three, add this module. Maybe (laughs) there are some, but it's certainly a convention trick that really works well and can benefit a lot of games. Yeah, definitely. I've certainly had it like a Star Trek the right at Kraken recently. I like I told people not to really bother too much about the, the abilities on the back of the character sheets, mm. which all did stuff to, to mess around with the mechanics. Uh initially anyway. And and by halfway through the session people started turning around and going, Wait, hang a minute. If I use this ability, do I get that? It's like, Yes you do. It's like, Oh brilliant. But like they needed to learn the basics of the system first mm. and then sort of levelled up by turning on all their abilities later on once they understood what the basic mechanic was and how they could mess around with it. So the last one I'll mention briefly. Uh, we have a lot of time, so I'll just I'll just a uh, light dusting. But don't rest your head. Which oh. I don't imagine is on many people's bingo. Card. I I've not got that one. Oh. There you go. But that's it's um, a game in a sort of like a, a, a nightmare. Well, literally a nightmare as well during a nightmare. Um, but uh, it's about trying not to fall asleep. 
and uh, you have uh, three sort of stats, you want to call them that, discipline, exhaustion, and madness. And you can kind of like increase your exhaustion to get dice now, but it'll come back to haunt you later, and you're trying not to fall asleep and stuff. You can lead to madness. And each of those has different colored dice, and whichever one comes out on top will inform uh, the outcome of the roll, basically. So that's uh, that's another one where it's just got multiple uh, feeds into what dice you're rolling, and then you as a player and the gym don't know what's going to be the flavor of the outcome. Mm. until you see which dice was highest out of those three things. Uh, but there's lots of the, uh, good stuff to like about Don't Rush Your Head, so I recommend people go away and have a look at that uh, in terms of a very laser-focused kind of like game about what it's about mm. and, ha- and having some funky dice mechanics to sort of mix in there as well to give you some new ideas. Cool. So having sent everybody rushing off to drive through, which is our mission... <laughs> I should give my affiliate ID out, shouldn't I? So people can give me 10 pence for the buzz. If you download it, it doesn't count as expenditure. Just go for it. Treat yourself. <laughs> yeah, do that. And thank you very much to all our patrons I mentioned briefly before, but anyone who supports the podcast, if you just uh, spread by word of mouth, if you tell people about it, share on Twitter or Facebook or wherever else, get it on your TikTok channel, whatever you do, uh, all that helps with the algorithms and the internet gods and stuff to help support us and keeps us enthused to carry on delivering you great content. And I'm so sure that the Venn diagram of listeners to this podcast and TikTok users is immense. So, you know, I'll see you there, <laughs> kids. I'd love to see if there's one. Do let us know <laughs> on Twitter. Until next time, ciao, ciao. Adios. Adios.